Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. Um, my guest today is Charlton Mc Irwin. Did I get Wayne Mc? Mm. Mackle, Mackle, Wayne. Mackle, Wayne. I knew it. Go. See, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it happens. It happens, people. You know, I, I, I screw this up all the time. Um, and pronouns are he, him. So this gentleman I have been wanting on the show since one of the fabulous black um, researchers. I can't even remember which one because I've had so many on females. When I asked them, I'm like, who, what? men are doing this and your name popped up it, it probably was Rahu um, uh, Ruha Benjamin I believe it may have been her she because she gave me a list of people Indeed. so you and I have been we have been trying to get this scheduled for a while you have been absolutely busy because of your new book so I'll stop talking and I'll let you introduce yourself all right my name is Charlton McElwain I'm a professor of media, culture, and communication here at New York University, NYU, where I'm also a vice provost for faculty engagement and development. Okay, so we're going to start with two questions, as always. Why is it important to cause a scene, and how are you causing a scene? Well, I think it's important to cause a scene, number one, uh, because that's the only way that things uh, change so to disrupt the status quo to make sure that what we are doing is what we're supposed to be doing and if not uh, to raise people's attention to the fact that we need to be doing something uh, differently and we cause a scene to make ourselves visible uh, and make sure that people have not forgotten that we are here uh, that we have wants that we have requests that we have demands and how are you causing a scene well, I won't get into all of the, the ways I am. Uh, some of them probably not fit for the show, but I will say... Okay, let me stop you right there. This is an adult show, so okay. you know that you can say whatever the hell you want to. These are grown people, and they need, to, they need to hear the truth. So I just wanted to stop and let you know that. So go ahead. All right, all right. Well, I, I cause a scene in two ways. I'm uh, an academic. I'm a researcher. I am a... Uh, higher education uh, leader. And so that's where I try to cause a scene most recently uh, through my new book, Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter. Um, and I also try to cause a scene at my institution and in uh, higher education where I try to uh, call attention to the ways that we need to uh, do better in terms of who we offer educational opportunity to, who is uh, prepared to be successful within the academy uh, and beyond. Okay, so mm, this, hopefully we can get this to air before, um, um, there are some guests that come on that come on right at the right time. And so next, this is on a Monday, the next Tuesday is... Um, is um, Super Tuesday. So I really want this episode right. to, um, hopefully my producer and I can get this out 
um, so on this coming Wednesday, so we can have some conversation. Because I want to, I want to start by reading a passage just out of a, a paragraph out of um, the book Black Software. It's in the introduction, page seven. But Black Software is also a story about how computing technology was built and developed to keep Black America docile and in its place disproportionately disadvantaged, locked up, and marked for life. This is a story that I unravel in book two. It speaks to the nefarious ways in which power use computing technology to destroy Black agency by nullifying Black people's hopes and dreams, aspirations, human potential, and political interests, and limiting the heights we are meant to achieve. This story shock waves reverberate and still divine our, define our present day. Mm. <laughs> you even had to say mm, on that because I mm. yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm one of the reasons I want to. I'm so happy that I'm never upset or discouraged when a guest has to reschedule and all these other things because I always I found out that they, the episodes or the recordings happen when they're supposed to happen. And so one of the reasons I really want this to come out um, before Super Tuesday is we just saw in South Carolina um, how Biden, and this is, again, for people who, this is not an endorsement. This is just talking about the reality of numbers. Because everybody in tech always loves to do the quantitative. We don't, we don't love, we don't want to play around with the qualitative that actually brings in (laughs) nuances to stuff. But let's just talk about this, this, this gets you, you know, tickle your little fancies right now. We only talking about quantitative data and quantitative data says black folks don't trust y'all, don't trust you in the voting booth. And whether we had, whether those voters in South Carolina had a problem with Biden, they are going with what they fucking know. So, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and this is where I, people, you get the pushback, you get the, you get the people keep telling, we have been here, whether it's Trump or whoever, we've been here before. What's right. different is white people have never experienced this, this kind of anxiety. This is how we learn to live. We have coping mechanism. It's very unhealthy as hell, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. This is how we've got here. So I read that passage because I'm so sick of people wanting to talk about tech is not biased, want to talk about, want to be so quick to extrapolate the human out of things. Um, We, this past Saturday, South Carolina showed what it's like when qualitative data, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because people people were ignoring (laughs) the qualitative data. Everybody's looking at the polls and everybody's shocked. Black folks weren't shocked. We weren't shocked. We've been right. saying we we thought we yeah y'all started with Iowa and New Hampshire we ain't there, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so talk to, to I know I said a lot, but but know that we're just talking so speak to whatever yeah. parts of that you feel like speaking to. Um, well, they are they are strangely related. I'm I'm like you, you know. Timing happens for a reason, and so glad to finally make this happen. And it's probably uh, the right time. And I think the thread that you started um, is a good show of that. I'm reminded of uh, Congressman uh, William Lacey Clay uh, Sr., who was one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, back in late 60s, early 70s. 
And I'm reminded of a statement that he said that was part of a book that he wrote a little bit later on that was called Just Permanent Interests. And what he said was that Black people have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And I think that is part of what you were speaking to about the realities of South Carolina. That is, um, look, we all and white folks look on and say, hey, we're all Democrats and therefore we are aligned and may see things this way or that way. Um, we're Folks say, uh, no, um, actually we are not. And part of that is because we are reading our experience um, as a historical experience and not, as you said, one that begins today with this election, with, um, uh, with the, the previous primaries, uh, so on and so and forth. And for most of these individuals, let's be honest, 2016 was the first time they were ever like, oh my God, there's still racism. Oh, so, yeah, they don't have much of a history to draw on. Exactly. And that, I think that historical component, which is to say, look, we Black folks, people of color, live with this reality every day and uh, for all of our history, um, is a way of saying that this permeates every facet of our life and everything that we touch, whether it's elections or uh, technology. And so when we go back to the 1960s and where that quote that you read from the book uh, began, I think that was uh, in part a, um, uh, a sort of significant uh, expression of this uh, reality, which is when new computing technology came onto the scene, there were black folks who were not a part of what was going on. We were not a part of largely the folks that uh, sat around a table and said, what will this new technology be for? Uh, what, we will, what will we do with it? Uh, it gives us an immense power, so how will we use that power? Our voices were not by and large part of uh, those conversations. But for those who were trying to speak to the conversation at the time, these were civil rights folks and otherwise, um, said, look, I may not know about the technology itself. I may not have an engineering degree from MIT, but what I do know is that what drives America is anti-Black racism. And I know that this new technology, uh, more than likely, is going to be used uh, to support that particular reality, that status quo that keeps uh, certain people above uh, others. And so that's you know, a large part of what uh, I found and what uh, continues to permeate, I think, our discussion about race and tech uh, and other parts that these things touch from elections uh, and politics and policies more broadly, from the 60s till now, there is that at base, that systemic, that structural racism that influences, permeates, influences every aspect of, of our okay, reality. So I, want to, I want to make sure no one missed this. So the, the what I quoted from the book is something that people were talking about in 1960, people. This is not new. And this is why I tell you, you 
not stop to stop being so damn lazy and become a uh, a disciple of history uh, because we've been here before. Um, this is not new. So could you speak? So I love when I have historians on here because they connect dots for people who think, oh, this is brand new. So I just pulled a paragraph out of the introduction. Can you speak more broadly or more specifically, whichever way you want to go, about the begin that the fact that these conversations were happening in the 60s? Yeah, yeah no. I want I, I want to give some context. I want people to understand that this people have been people, black people have been talking about this and the problem of anti-blackness in tech for a long time. For a while. It's nothing new. So yes. In, indeed, and I'll um, I'll uh, I'll talk about it in this way. Um, last year, a little more than a year ago, uh, the Intercept did an investigative news piece about um, uh, New York City and about the NYPD. And the gist of the story that they uncovered was that the NYPD was sharing its data that came from all the cameras that are spread across the city uh, and capturing uh, everyone, uh, their movements, their faces, et cetera. So that NYPD was sharing this data with IBM for the purpose of building uh, a facial recognition system that could identify criminal suspects by skin color. And so, that was the gist and the big reveal of the story, that this was happening and that this was uh, messed up, to say the, the very least. The second part of the reveal in that story was this has been happening, that is, this collusion between the NYPD and IBM for five years that they had been working together to build this system. And I remember when that story came out and I remember uh, chuckling to myself and thinking, you missed the whole damn story because this is not a five year story, it's a 50 year one. And when I said that I meant mm. very mm -hmm. literally and specifically about the ties uh, since the early mid 60s between IBM and the NYPD, to deliberately answer the question, what can I use these new computer systems for? And thinking about the NYPD and other law enforcement who said and recognized, well, if computers are meant to solve problems, then what is the greatest problem we have? And for law enforcement, that essentially was black people. We were the nation's problem in 1960 when we thought about crime, when we thought about violence, when we thought about uprisings in the city, when we thought about threats to the status quo and America's racial order, black people personified that threat. And so it was at that time when very specifically law enforcement said, here is our problem, IBM and other computing companies, but really IBM, um, what kind of solution can you build for us? And it didn't take them 20 years. It didn't take them 30 or 50. It took them all of a year or two to begin to design 
and ultimately perfect what they began to call in the mid-1960s criminal justice information systems. These were connected databases that provided the uh, ability for law enforcement to identify, to target, to surveil, to profile people uh, based on race, uh, and then to begin to start to do all of these things that we know of now as predictive uh, policing, uh, facial recognition, all of those things are a direct line from these early moments in the 1960s up to all these varying systems that we have today that do the same thing. How do we deal with and try to curtail what our national problems are? And black folks still find that as it was in the 1960s, we're still the nation's problem. Mm, okay, so I wanna speak to that, that I don't know if that's a noun or a verb, the nation's problem. Um, <laughs> um, I know it sounds like a great book title because um, I want to speak to on two separate two things. And, uh, and you can decide which one of these um, paths you want to take. One is the path of how do you address particularly the default white supremacist system that is in tech. Um, how do you challenge the fact that you know, based on history, that the nation's problem is black people and that everything that we've created, whether we it's been intentional or not, has been to address that um, problem in a neg and it negatively impacts blacks because everyone wants to act like tech is some utopia. Hmm. Um, and, and won't, and, and refuse to dig deeper into the fact that, and you're saying this is at the root of it as, as I'm always talking about white supremacy is at the root of all of this. That's one lane we can go down. Okay. So I'm gonna give you options. The other lane to go down is hmm. with, again, when I'm talking about super Tuesday with politicians who cannot who want to talk about class, but never wants to talk about the nation's problem, which they have to know mm. is the issue. So it's like, I, I, I see all these people. And again, it's not about endorsements. You guys know, I told you none of your fucking business who I'm voting for. So stop asking. Um, but my thing mm. is I have yet to see an, a, a fundamentally anti-racist campaign now that any person of color of substance is out of this race. So yes, Warren is speaking to things, but for me, she seems to be parroting what the black women around her are saying. I don't see that Warren has any history, again, history of coming to any of this before she decided to run for, um, for this race. Um, Tom Steyer, totally surprising. He is the white dude who was talking deeply about these things. But what did he have to lose? He's a billionaire. You know, it's like, I can, I, I'm in here. I can pay for my own campaign. I can say what I want yep. to. Um, I don't care what Bernie may or may not have done in the 60s. That is the 60s. Right. Um, and I talk about... Um, Oh my God. And, I, I, and people know I love putting labels on things because they help my ADHD mind. So when you say the nation's problem is black people, that just 
totally opened up a whole, because I did a video about why Medicare for all will cause harm. Mm-hmm. And, and I gave three reasons. One is there are physicians being trained today. I mean, not, not old school dudes, but people who are being trained today who believe that blacks have a thicker epidermis mm. and that we um, can tolerate more pain. This is why blacks did not initially get caught up in the opioid epidemic because they were not prescribing them to us. We're only involved in epidemic now because of the illegal, you know, it's on the street. That's one. Um, that has nothing to do with having health care for all. <laughs> um, so two is when you look, when they um, doing the quantitative and the qualitative data, when you extrapolate out class, wealth, position, black women and their babies are in more danger of, of being, of dying in childbirth um, than white poor women. And that includes, and we saw that very clearly in the last few years with Serena and Beyonce. If these two women who are billionaires or married to billionaires couldn't figure it out and, and the physicians didn't believe that they were in distress, that, that Medicare for All doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do anything for that. And the third one is just poor folks. Um, I live in a city, you live in a city where there are great um, medical services near you. You can easily get in New York to get to somewhere. If you're in bumfuck upper New York or somewhere, you can't get somewhere. That How is Medicare for All taking care of that? Mm-hmm. These are the things that people don't want to talk about. And these are the things that just really irk me to know <laughs> in how, how on the surface we like to stay. Mm. We want to talk, people want to talk about how he's going to, you know, anybody's going to fund this. Screw how you're going to fund it. My thing is, how are you going to make sure it's not fundamentally racist from the beginning? Because right. I, we already have um, affordable health care act. I live in a state that they didn't, they opted out of Medicaid. Mm. You should, they shouldn't have been able to opt. That right there mm. says it in itself. So because I'm an entrepreneur, I can't afford health insurance, but because I can't have afford the health insurance, I get a penalty. That's a penalty on being on, on the poor. Right. Right. So even, Affordable health care that was um, presented by a black president caused harm. Mm. So until we're talking about the systems mm-hmm. that are in place, all of this is bullshit to me. I just want to back, like, can your people really tell me? Can someone please give me a path to any of this that fundamentally changes the structures that will automatically once implemented mm. further oppress and harm the most vulnerable? Ooh, yeah. You said it. <laughs> I don't know if I could say it much better, but it it is the that underlying thread that, and you know, you 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 put this as uh, pursuing two two roads and two options to talk about, but they are they are the same underlying issue. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. 
To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtagcausescene.com. They, they are the same underlying issue. And that is... Okay, say, okay I'm going to stop you right there because I wanted you to say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> people don't see it as the same thing and I really need to see them to connect it. There it it wasn't me. It was Doc. He said it. I, I did didn't. It. I'll say it again. <laughs> it is... The same thing. And it is that thing that we simply refuse to talk about, whether we're talking about elections or we're talking about technology. And that is the question of race. And I think, you know, speak to the on the tech end for now, um, as people were starting to have this uh, this consciousness about the ways in which technology might cause disparate harms to people of color, to black folks, et cetera. Um, number one, that's been only fairly recently. When I first started researching this area eight to 10 years ago, um, you know, you didn't have uh, uh, Ruha Benjamin's work. You didn't have Sophia Noble's work. You didn't have uh, Meredith Broussard's work uh, and all these folks that amplify the ways in which technology gets both designed and ultimately negatively impacts folks um, uh, of color. And so as that discourse began to, to grow, we started to have more and more conversation and started to become part of the reality. We started having new words for these things uh, like uh, you know, algorithmic uh, bias, um, and or we talk about the need for ethics or things of this nature. And the thing that I noticed as folks began to talk and write about these things is over and over and over again, we still are papering over what is at bottom of this issue, and that is race. And so what I mean to say is we talk about the universalizing, well, let's make sure all technologies are good. Let's make sure that our technology work for all people, um, that no one is left behind, which is all good, except that typically what that does and what that means is that we don't pay specific attention to black folks or other communities. We assume that everybody will be part of this Let's do and build technology for good. Uh, but we're not willing to talk about how we build technology that will be specifically good or mitigate harm for specific types of groups of people and communities. And I think that is the same underlying thread. Uh, again, 50, 60 years ago, we talk about technology, we talk about politics and what's still remains the same today. Uh, part of the beauty of uh, researching and then writing this book was seeing how much, um, how often black folks have been saying this one line and how frequently and consistently over years and decades we are simply ignored. Uh, and so as technology and new computing technology was coming on the scene and being developed in the early 60s that we were starting to talk about automa automation and the uh, consequences and implications that computerization would have on the workforce and labor and black labor in particular. 
civil rights folks were saying, look, I may not have all these fancy degrees, but I know uh, that if anyone stands to lose, it's going to be black folks first. If anyone's going to be uh, uh, computerized out of a job first, it's going to be black folks. And people like Bayard Rustin and others said very early on, look, if we are going to ensure that 20, uh, 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road, that this new technology has worked well for all people, then we must talk about the underlying issue of the fact that black people are at the bottom of the social and economic ladder and talk about the ways in which computers and other technology need to be designed to change that. But ultimately, uh, you know, what he said was, if we refuse to talk specifically about blackness, about anti-black racism, then we're going to continue to have the same uh, same problem. And lo and behold, 50, 60 years later, we find that still the case, that in our elections, uh, we don't want to talk about blackness in our technology. We don't want to talk about blackness or anti-blackness. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll just make one more uh, example before I uh, stop my uh, particular rant on this one, which is I'm going back to 2016 and right after the election, a period of time that I started to become much more frustrated with Democrats and folks on the left than I did about the fact that, uh, that Trump had won the election. And that is we immediately, I mean, within the day, I think it was, of the election, started to say, look, we really need, and when I say we, I mean the collective uh, folks on the, the ideological left, we really need to go pay much more attention to the concerns of white folks. For the first time in a long time, the months before the election, we were talking about black folks and you had Black Lives Matter folks, you had activists that were making sure that Bernie in that election and Clinton in that election and other people were speaking directly about race uh, in their party platforms, in their candidate platforms, uh, for the first time in a long time. And then all of a sudden, the conversation shifted and it became right back again, reflexively, this is all about white folks. And if we're going to really solve this problem about an election, about what's uh, really ailing this country, uh, we have to start thinking about uh, white folks and their interests as the primary thing that we have to solve. And if we solve it for for those folks, then that will be inclusive of everybody. And I think that is symptomatic of the problem that you identify and that I'm identifying, which is um, it's always so easy to simply say there's no need to talk about blackness, to talk about racism, uh, and that we can think of ourselves as still trying to do some good while ignoring all those things that are at the heart of all of these uh, problems. So what you just spoke on is, is deep and I talk about it a lot. When whiteness is centered, everything else just goes out the window. Um, so if I have a 
uh, a white transgender individual, um, if they go into a, a another marginalized space with transgender or um, any um, groups with the LG, in, within the LGBTQA community, and they do not um, look for solidarity among those groups and yet go in and center whiteness, their marginalization is erased because now these individuals feel attacked, they don't feel safe, and now they have to protect themselves against this white person who came in. Same thing you see with um, white feminism, which is basically the default for feminism. Feminism by default is about whiteness. Um, tech by default is about whiteness. Um, hell, medicine, education, everything that we have is about white supremacy. And it makes white people way more comfortable to, to fall back on what has always been. So of course, I'm not surprised that this conversation quickly shifted to the angst of white people, because that's, that's what makes them comfortable. That's where they want to spend their energy and their efforts. Um, and yet, again, South Carolina this past Saturday showed your asses, try that shit if you want to. Try it if you want to. As we have told you, mm. I'm just going to put it out here. Yep. Four more years for yep. us is what we're going to do is we have learned as a community, we're going to protect the most vulnerable. We're going to make sure we're protected and we're going to stay the hell away from y'all because four more years of white people finally being mm. in pain is not going to be a thing that's going to be pretty. It is not going to be pretty. White folks do not have the skills for the cope and the resiliency that we have. And you see it, and once they start feeling the pain, we unfortunately get harmed. Because this is why I do not like and do yep. not recommend and do not purport, and I'm going to say it again, do not, in all caps, want to talk to people about white fragility anymore. When Robin DiAngelo came hmm. up with the theory, it was to explain the behaviors of white people when they when it talked about race. It was never meant to be used as a way for white people to excuse away or, or, or not take responsibility for their actions. Because when white people feel, when they're getting, when, when they have white fragility, I'll put that in quotes, when they are experiencing white fragility, it does not stay with them. That is a cause and effect action. As soon as white people feel fragility, there is an, uh, uh, an often mm. exaggerated, I won't even say equal, often exaggerated um, effect um, that happens to the most vulnerable. And we get harmed in, um, in how they respond. They either can be wise enough to say, hey, whatever is going on right now is making me uncomfortable. And I did sit with that and shut the fuck up right now because I may do something to harm people. But more times than not, what happens is they go into yeah. mode <laughs> where they're, preservate, they're preserving their feelings over everything else and anything else that matter does not matter anymore because we have shifted to whiteness. We have to focus here. And this is why I tell people, I say this about 10 times a day. So I want people to understand it. Um, whiteness is always cast in the role of the hero or victim. It is never the villain. So it is always its role to recast and rechange and change the narrative I don't care what they are doing. If they are actively stabbing someone, it is because if they are being a hero or a victim. It is never villain. Um, and 
So yes, I was totally, totally not surprised by what you discovered. I'm not surprised. It, it, it took a day um, because as soon as that data came out that showed that white women mm. tipped the thing, oh, 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 now we got data. Oh, oh, oh you can't blame us. You can, it's not, you can try to change that narrative if you want to, but every time you do, we're just going to throw that data back at you because you love quantitative. So let's deal with this quantitative. We're going to show you pie charts and graphs up there. <laughs> Because, because that's what you want. You don't want to talk about the lived experience, so I can exp so we can have a conversation of why white women um, um, feel compelled. Because there's a lot of reasons, um, and one of them, and 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 because you don't want to have the nuanced conversation, I just have the blatant conversation. Is because white men, women's roles is literally to breed white supremacy. So they, their roles is to breed and maintain white supremacy for their. I mean, they do it by getting birth. I mean, just that's what it is. And so um, if you don't want to have a nuanced conversation of why that is and how that can be shifted, I can stay right there on the surface and just be like, mm, that's what you do. Um, and mm. not care that you're trying to learn these things. Or we can go get real uncomfortable, all of us, and figure this out. Because once the most vulnerable are taken care of, everybody else is taken care of. And for the first time, it's just not the canaries in the minefield that are dying. I say this mm -hmm. all the time. White supremacy is the parasite that is now eaten on its host. Mm. Yep. You hit it. You hit they're, it. In, they're about to experience some pain. This, I, 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 was saying, I was saying this at the beginning of 2018 when I was working with, I'm like, y'all ain't ready. People talking about this upcoming election, but y'all not doing enough to, to mm -hmm. shift. And then we saw all the bots um, against Kamala. We saw with all the disinformation, we see that yet again, Bernie Sanders knew about Russian interference and said nothing. Um, we said we, we know, I mean, we have one candidate who's still in who thought until very recently it was OK to claim um, a, 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 an a ethnicity or affiliation that she didn't have. Um, we saw until today, because, well, yesterday he dropped out, a white man with the same exact credentials as a black man with more experience, get way more attention, way more money, way more press and everything. Um, we saw a lot. And this was the first election where, unless you are the group of people who only watch Fox News, um, you got exposed to some stuff that you can make a choice, whether you're going to accept this truth as truth because it's our lived experience or are you going to continue to be complicit in making yourself comfortable? And these are the questions that people have to or need to ask themselves every day in tech, which they are not yet ready to do. But lack of inclusion is a risk management issue. And it's and very soon you won't have a choice. Right. And so you won't have a choice and you won't be prepared. So that's all that's all going to be all kinds of hell going on. All kinds of <laughs> That's gonna be all kinds of messed up. <laughs> it's gonna be an interesting few years to say the least. Yes, exactly. And I'm just gonna sit back and and, and cross my arms <laughs> and raise my prices and wait for yep. you to come because I've been saying it, but you know, I'm just an angry right. black woman. What do I know? You know, <laughs> I don't I'm not pursuing a doctor as a business administration focusing on technology entrepreneurship. Of course, of course I'm not. 
I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, tell me how, how, cause I really want to get into the thread of the, so tell me about how did you come to this particular, what's your, ba- I guess this, what's your background that made you come to this book? Besides just being a black fan, how did you come to the technology, bringing all that together with the technology piece? What's your background? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question given uh, the thread of our conversation up till now because my my early career and where I thought most of my career was going to be was in um, elections. So I worked as a political operative in oh. uh, <laughs> uh, Oklahoma. Um, for several years throughout the the mid and late 90s. Um, If you know anything about Oklahoma, you'll understand the reason why that uh, dead ended as a a career path for me. But um, that's where I began with an interest in elections and politics, worked for a lot of uh, politicians there. And then my first uh, 10, 12 years of my uh, scholarly career was focused on trying to understand uh, the ways that people, candidates, uh, political candidates, and so forth, mobilize race in election campaigns. And so myself and a colleague of mine named Stephen Maynard Caliendo wrote a book uh, back in 2011, I think it was, called Race Appeal, How Candidates Invoke, invoke Race in U.S. Political Campaigns. Uh, and that book was all about basically what we've been talking about this this whole time, the ways that race uh, finds its way in political discourse and that candidates use it in one way or another to uh, find political uh, advantage. Um, so that's where most of my career, at least half of my career, uh, had been. And towards the end of that part, I started understanding and seeing that the people that were doing the work that I was doing and the people I was having conversations with more and more had started to do that work in an online environment. And so I started to become more interested in uh, the internet and digital technology, mainly because it was uh, starting to be the place where folks who were talking about race and people who were talking about uh, politics and social mobility and so forth we're doing this in this online context and in and around uh, technology. So that's how I started uh, coming to this um, uh, arena. Uh, for me, that meant retooling in a lot of ways, both in terms of subject matter and research uh, tools and methodology and so forth. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when the, the Black Lives Matter movement really started to uh, come online in 2014, 2015. I think that was a, a turning point for me because I really wanted to understand how that movement came uh, to be, um, particularly because folks, uh, you know, two, three years uh, after 2014, 2015, people were already saying, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter wasn't all that big a thing. Certainly isn't something that's going to last. Um, but part of me wanted to say, look, whether that's true or not, we should give due to what happened within that couple of years period that had not happened really in the last 50 years. That is, for the first time 
in almost half a century, you had most of the country again saying that issues about race, racial disparities, racial discrimination, particularly uh, racial discrimination at the hands of the US criminal justice system was a significant problem that we should be talking about. That had not happened in any public and real way since about the early 1970s. But here we were in 2014, 15, 16, suddenly talking about these issues again and doing so consistently. Um, and all of that was uh, in no small part to uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, activists and others who were more tangentially connected to um, uh, what was going on in that moment. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm, and for prioritizing the most vulnerable, is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1 Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. what was going on in that moment. So I really wanted to understand how that movement came to be and really what the role of digital media technology played uh, in that movement. And so when I began to write Black Software, the book was really intended to be an answer to that question, where did Black Lives Matter come from? And how did it come to be? Um, and that, uh, that was the beginning of it. And then suddenly, a little ways down the road, that all abruptly changed um, as I started going back uh, in history. And so I knew, you know, as much to know that, um, uh, you know, while Black Lives Matter began uh, technically with uh, uh, the young women um, and uh, the activists and organizers uh, who started a hashtag after Trayvon Martin, Martin was uh, killed and uh, after his killer was acquitted, that's where technically Black Lives Matter began. Um, but that 
the conditions that lay the groundwork for what became Black Lives Matter uh, were laid uh, earlier uh, in time. And so I went searching for that time, ended up, of course, in uh, the early, mid-90s when the web first comes online. And I began to discover uh, Black folks that were intimately involved in the uh, the creation and development of the web from its beginnings uh, in 1992, 93, 94. Um, and then I remember a moment, and this was really the, uh, the result of a single phone call that changed everything. And that call was to uh, a guy that I had come across uh, on the web. His name was William Morell. It was the first time I had ever seen these two words together, which was black software. They were connected to uh, something on his website. And so I decided to give him a call to see what that was about and to understand what he meant by this idea of black software. And so as I was calling and talking to folks, I usually would ask people the same question and start off and say, uh, when did you first get online? Um, and I thought, you know, I knew the answer to that question for most people because the internet comes online in the early 90s. I'm thinking that is the answer, at least somewhere between that time and, and now. And I asked William that question. He kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit and said, eh, you know, um, I was online, uh, I think, you know, about 1978. And I remember stopping at that point thinking to myself what the hell could you be talking about <laughs> what, what do you mean by being online in 1978 we don't even have this thing we call the internet the web until 20 something years later so what is it that you are talking about mm -hmm. and he began to unravel a story about his work with uh, IBM and IBM's work in building uh, a network that was uh, an internet for folks like him who were technicians at the company to work and speak to and troubleshoot when they were out in the field. Um, and so the bottom line was what he did was open a whole door about black folks in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s, who were working with computing technology in ways that I had never heard of, that our history books have uh, never talked about. And suddenly my question for this book change, which was less about how did Black Lives Matter happen and more to what has been the long relationship of Black folks to computing technology and the internet, uh, over a longer history. And that's what ultimately landed me back in uh, the 1960s, uh, which was the, the moment when that uh, first clash happened. And realizing that, you know, we talk about the 60s, we talk about the civil rights movement and the rise of computing technology and uh, in any history, whether that's a history of civil rights or a history of uh, technology, um, if we're talking about that same period, it's as if these two stories are separate and disconnected stories. And so what it for sounds me familiar. to... Yeah, indeed. 
Um, and even the most progressive folks. Okay, so I'm gonna say this. I, I I need a new definition of progressive because some of these, these folks who think they're progressive, <laughs> I just I, I'm like, uh, okay, I need white folks to stop de- um, defining terms because y'all ain't progressive to me. If you can't talk about race, you're not progressive. Indeed. Well, I will say the most um, distinct or different voice on that issue around tech and the civil rights movement at the time was basically saying, look, here we have a moment where these two stories are playing out across this decade and they are disconnected and there's none in one camp that is connected to the other and vice versa and so so for me to suddenly land in that moment and to say that's complete and utter bullshit, it, it was it was such a uh, a jarring moment and jarring both because a that story had never been told in that way but also it was jarring because it, it was not as if um, how do I put it uh, uh, it, it was not a story that was hard to find I'll put it there. <laughs> and they never are they never they never are it requires that you ask the right question and that you're willing to look in the right place. And though I will say, I spent a lot of painstaking staking moments in uh, archives and so forth. I only had to ask the right question to land in this mountain of stuff that told me the mm-hmm. story that just left me day after day saying, what the fuck is going on mm-hmm. that I never knew this story. Um, and so that's what uh, ultimately I attempt to, to to write about and explain, at least in some small way throughout the book. That's one of the blessings I, 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 I know we give to society is that folks in, in tech and around tech, adjacent to tech, who are not white are now able to tell, find stories, tell stories, share stories that give a, a more colorful, paint a more colorful picture of of um, reality, mm-hmm. and yet girts it in history. I mean, you, you can have some. I can have some conversations with some of these mediocre bro, white tech bros, and I'm like, dudes, y'all <laughs> think y'all made this shit up? Y'all are the most unimaginable, un, 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 uncreative, mm. mediocre, stealing. Opting, uh, uh, oh my God! All you do is th- are you are thieves? You don't nothing, mm-hmm. nothing that mm-hmm. you do is creative to me. I really just I just because I can look because we get all excited and then someone like you comes and shares something. I'm like shit. This happened 20 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that was the, I mean, I, I talk about more, probably more often than I should, or maybe, maybe not the, <laughs> that moment of going and finding, you know, this time 50, 50 plus years ago in the sixties. But I think equally shocking to me was landing back in the, in the nineties and finding out there was a early on in the in the first draft of the manuscript that I, I uh, started to write, there was a chapter that was called "Remember When the Internet Was Black," and for some reason that chapter disappeared, but the story is still uh, in the book. And that was 
the discovery, and I say discovery for me, um, in essence, to say when we arrived in 92, 93, 94, when the web first begins to come online, and to start to realize that at that juncture, we start talk, we stop talking about an internet that is about um, technical infrastructure and pipes and so forth to something that is altogether different. And to think about a moment in 93 and 94 where people didn't know what the hell an internet was, had no use for it, did not have any reason to say, I will spend exorbitant amounts of money for subscriptions to AOL and other kind of internet (laughs) service providers. Um, Just sitting out in front of the house. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, like I got no time, no reason for all of this. What the hell is it anyway? And to think that that market for what we now call the web uh, was powered by black folks. And so that's one of those stories that I tell about folks like uh, Malcolm Cassell uh, and David Ellington who built Net Noir, uh, an AOL uh, a company back in, uh, 94, 95. Um, and it was, it wasn't just a black website. It wasn't just a black portal. It was the black content driven portal that was owned by, powered by black folks that brought everybody to this new online environment, black folks, white folks, and everyone. So to, to think that, Blackness was at the heart and at the foundation of what we now call the web and refer to as uh, the web, uh, I think is monumental and is, uh, to go back to what you were just saying, is indicative of this fact of what uh, folks like uh, David and Malcolm knew when they made that bet and when AOL bet on them, which is everybody loves black culture. And at certain moments, we recognize that and we build upon it. And those folks get credit uh, and get paid for uh, their brilliance and creativity of the things that they do. And then after a certain while, that all goes away. And then we become uh, um, okay with just mm-hmm. stealing it. Uh, we can see that with... Um people tell you, I mean, we'll say now that Twitter is what it is because of black Twitter. We make things cool. That's just who we are. Um, And and, and it also speaks to, because I'm sick of the tech, the bro tech bros who will fucked up history. Oh my God, the history they think they know. Um, When I say that Elon Musk is mediocre, when I say that, uh, I mean, if I had apartheid at my back, if my parents were, um, professor you know uh elites as his were if i was able to take to, hell i had a computer but you take that shit apart if you want to and get your ass beat um I, it was no experimenting with building and if i had all of those i think i would be um yeah certainly sir i'm not i'm no longer impressed with any of this but yet you have when, when we say something about them you have these tech pros well if it wasn't for white people black people wouldn't i was like what the hell job? <laughs> What planet did white people come up with anything? Come on now. <laughs> uh, it, is, it, it, it becomes it becomes comical 
And yet it is saddening at the same time because without books like yours, we spend our whole time trying to get people to understand our lived experiences. And I'm at a point where I don't need to understand that your lived experience for me, I, all I need to know that there's a potential for harm for me to make a different choice. I don't need to have to, for me, for you to cut open your veins, so me, for me to see you bleed, for me to understand that what I have done, I may be doing or about to do, contemplating doing based on your recommendation will cause harm. I don't need to do all that. And so I really, I really, I, I, people, t- I would, people tell you I love a history lesson because yeah. it helps, me, first of all, it, it helps me um, be completely optimistic because I'm like, oh, we've been here before. We survived yeah. this and we have more information now so we can do much better. It also alleviates a lot of anxiety because, okay, we, it's that whole, okay, this is not new. Mm-hmm. I, might not, I might not have experienced, but somebody's experienced this. Yep. And also to know that Black people by uh, definitively were at the beginning of this mm-hmm. just makes me say, <laughs> okay, exactly. okay, white mediocre dude, you don't get the hell out of my face. <laughs> all this is comforting because, you know, the question, because, of, you know, all the angst that this raises for folks, you know, how do we... How do we do better in tech? How do we get more of this and that? And it's like, look, we've been here before. And not only do we know the experience for those that uh, have been negatively impacted, we know what the way forward is. Um, Find all of these creative black folks and folks of color that are out here that are creating, that have ideas, and give them a shitload of money and let them do their thing. That's what and, you, instead of so so uh, I'd say this all the time wh- white dudes in tech um, get funded off an can go from idea to IPO on VC money mm-hmm. and never be profitable mm-hmm. that's not even in our nature we yeah. already know we have to come out the, the door <laughs> with proof give us give us that money right. and see where we can go and you're absolutely right get the get fun yeah. I tell people all the time I need y'all to shut up and lend your privilege. I just need you to shut up and lend your privilege. You can't lend your, that's yeah. the least you can do is lend your privilege. Is oh, go yeah, and, yeah. and get the hell out the and way. get out of the way. Cause you will profit, you will benefit. <laughs> yep, indeed. So what would you like to say in your closing moments? Uh, <laughs> this has been, uh, this has been great. It is, it's fun. It's fun talking about, I will say, you know, like you said, um, History is an amazing thing, uh, even more amazing when we discover it and discover it again. Um, and I think you know, if there's any lesson from me, any lesson from this book in the last few years that I uh, spent writing it, it is, um, you know, let's, we don't have to spend all of our time trying to remake the wheel, as they say. Let's really think about where have we been? What mistakes have we made? What opportunities have we squandered? And let's just say, let's do that different yeah. uh, oh, as a beginning. Let's not yes. have to spend all of our yes. time trying to come up and create and think through all these new, yes. nothing's, nothing's changed. Same old stuff. Let's just resolve that we will do it and do it this time differently. 
And and that's the thing that screws up with the 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 move fast break things. I don't have a problem with move fast break things. Fundament when you think about just the what the problem is is you move fast break things, move fast break things, move fast. No one stops to say, hey, what do we break? How do we break it? Can we do it right? What yeah. do we do? Nobody's looking at that data. We're just moving fast and breaking things. That's Can right. we stop and breathe and evaluate? Can we do that? Indeed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. As I knew, this would be a great conversation. All the best in, in your research. Um, I'm actually looking forward to finishing school so I can actually just be a researcher. I am so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And uh, good luck. It's been fascinating. I look forward to uh, another occasion to be able to, to join you. All right. Thank you. And have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.